sometimes you hear people say that, uh, that in, the, in the West these days, Christianity and religion in general is becoming less and less important, less central to how people see themselves, less important for you know, your, your standing in the community, for the jobs that you might want to get or what have you. I think there's a lot of truth to that. There's stats to back it up at least. Sociologists feel pretty good about it, about that narrative. And there's certain places, though, in, at least here in America, and I think we live in one of them, where it's not fully true, where there's still a lot of incentives to be religious. Now, I think the neighborhood we do business in here, uh, shaped as we are by university, uh, is more secular, less reached with the gospel than other parts of Nashville or the South in general. But I think it's also true, I think you guys will agree with me here, it's also true that for a lot of us, especially those raised in Christian homes, or at least a, a, a veneer of Christian identity, there is still an incentive to be religious, at least on the outside. Still friendships that require it. Still public reputations that feed off of that veneer. Still incentive to do things for their appearance rather than from the heart. That's why we need the section of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus, Jesus, where, where Jesus comes directly at hypocrisy. It's a section of the Sermon on the Mount that we started looking at together last week. It's pretty much all of chapter 6, especially the first part of chapter 6. In chapter 6 of Matthew, Jesus has reached the midpoint of his sermon, one of the longest sections of teaching ever recorded by Jesus in the Bible. And he's coming directly at the problem of practicing righteousness, that's his language, in order to be seen by other people. Not because you really believe it, not because it's actually shaping your life, not because it affects the way that you think or feel towards others, but because you feel like it'll get you somewhere. Religion as a means to an end. Few things have turned more people off to Christianity or to religion in general than hypocrisy. But we're not above it. Not one of us in this room this morning is above it. So we're looking to Jesus for some self-awareness. What we want from these passages, the next two or three weeks together, is a better sense of where we might be. No one, no one thinks that they're a hypocrite, right? I mean, part of hypocrisy is that it's blindness. You don't, it's, hypocrisy comes from what you don't see about yourself. So Jesus' gift to us through his words is a chance for us to see ourselves in a new light. Now, we noted last week that in this section about hypocrisy, Jesus gives three examples that are common practices in lots of religions, not just Judaism or Christianity. He, he points at giving to the poor, almsgiving. He points to prayer, and he points to fasting. Three basic religious practices where hypocrisy is, is really common, where we'll be tempted to it. This morning we're coming to his second example, to prayer, to how even in our approach to God, we can be thinking more about ourselves than we are about him. Jesus uses two contrasts in, the, in Matthew 6, 5 to 8. Two contrasts to make his point about hypocrisy and prayer. He tells us, don't pray like the hypocrite. And then he tells us, don't pray like the pagan. Don't pray like the hypocrite. Here's what he's after. Not that. Don't pray like the pagan. Here's what he's after. Not you. Not in my kingdom. Because Jesus is ultimately, in this sermon, the whole sermon, 
What he's trying to do is show us how people in his kingdom will do things differently than they would if they weren't with him. He makes a difference. He sets, he's setting up something new. So what does prayer look like for people who are with Jesus, people in this kingdom? Now I'm gonna, he, he, Jesus' points are mainly negative ones. Don't be like that guy. Don't be like that guy. I'm kind of flipping this this morning and making them positive. When you pray, two things this morning. When you pray, come to God because you love him and come to God because you trust him. If we want prayer lives that are genuine, that are rooted in our hearts, that are actually a relationship between us and God, not us posturing for the, for the effect that it'll have on other people, then we'll come to God when we pray because we love him. And we'll come to God when we pray because we trust him. That's where we're headed this morning. First, let me read the passage. Would you stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from Matthew chapter 6? I'm going to read verses 5 to 8. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. And pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This is God's Word. You can be seated. Do you notice the two examples? Verses 5 and 6 have the first one. Verses 7 and 8 have the next one. Two examples. Both of them showing us how our motive in prayer will affect the way that we pray. How what we want to get from prayer shapes how we practice prayer. So we're focusing on motives this morning. You want to pray in a way that honors God and it's actually effective. You'll pray because you love Him. That'll be your motive. You'll pray because you trust Him. So let's look at this first example. So verses 5 and 6. First example, Jesus comes back to the hypocrite. He's already introduced us to this hypocrite. What we looked at last week, He showed us how the hypocrites give to the needy. They make sure they blow trumpets before they give. They make sure it's in public where everybody can see. He's introduced us to a hypocrite. He's going to talk about him for a a good bit here in chapter 6. A hypocrite is a word that's just for play actor. It's it's somebody who's playing a role. Someone who wears a mask. Who takes on an identity that's not theirs. And who takes on that identity in order to please the crowd. That's what a hypocrite does. He's an actor who takes on an identity not his in order to please the people who are watching him. Now, now in this example, he's not talking about giving alms. He's talking about praying in public. And, and just like with giving alms, praying in public is not the problem. Praying in public was something that was common in Jewish practice, would be common in the practice of the early church. I just got finished praying in public, and you guys did it earlier in our service. Praying in public is not the problem any more than giving to the poor was the problem last week. The problem is not what they were doing, but why and how. The problem is wanting to pray because it's in public, because it's seen by other people. It's common in Jewish practice to pray three times a day, morning and midday and in evening. Think about, for example, if you know the story of Daniel in captivity, another country, foreign culture, 
being spotted and noticed by the people that he was around for the fact that he would stop whatever he was doing at a certain time of day and pray towards Jerusalem. Public prayer at certain times of day was common in Judaism, but what Jesus is calling out here is someone who who makes sure that when he does his appointed prayers at the right time, he does it where everybody can see him. It wouldn't have been common to just stand and do it on the street corner or to make sure it's really visible in the synagogue. That wasn't a thing. What Jesus just described here in, in verse 5, that, that, that's not a thing. That's not common to Jewish practice. In fact, it's less, it's less obvious to us, but he's doing here what he did last week when he talked about somebody blowing a trumpet before they have to give alms. Nobody was really doing that. Jesus is describing something really absurd to make his point. Here's the way one guy put it. What Jesus, in using this example, the guy who, who stands and prays in the synagogues and at the street corners, what Jesus is trying to do is he's, he's graphically depicting a worst-case scenario. He's describing a person who craves notice so much that he arranges to find himself in the street during regular daily prayer times. Praying in the street was not a thing. So Jesus is, is making, he's, he's trying to grab your attention. It's, it's just like this guy makes sure that, oh, it's, it's almost time for prayer and runs out of his home or where his place of work and makes sure that he's standing right there at the corner of the busy, busiest intersection so that everyone can see him. He's like the kid who won't jump off the diving board unless he knows everybody's looking, watching him. The same problem here that we looked at last week with the almsgiver. The motive is to impress other people. Jesus said in chapter 5 of Matthew that you're supposed to have a righteousness that stands out. You should let your works shine before men so that they see them and they glorify God. Standing out is something Jesus expects. The problem is when you do what you do in order to stand out. The hypocrite does things only to be seen by others and praised. The hypocrite's interested in his own brand, not in bringing glory to God. And Jesus says he'll get what he wants. He'll get his reward, but that's it. He'll get praise, maybe. Maybe people will whisper about him and talk about what a good guy he is, how pious, how holy. But that's it. If anything, the picture Jesus is describing here is worse than what we looked at last week. Haven't you experienced that sense of betrayal that you feel when you're talking to somebody in a public setting and you can tell that they're talking to you, but they're really talking to somebody else? Where what they're saying to you is just kind of a platform for a point they're trying to make to somebody else who's listening, where they're showing off a little bit for someone else in the conversation, using you to do it. That feels awful. That's essentially what Jesus is describing here. So last week we said the problem with the giver who sounds his trumpet before he gives is that he's not actually serving the poor. The poor aren't the point for him. He's actually using the poor They're his instrument to buy for himself the reputation that he wants. So if last week's problem was using the poor to build a brand for yourself, this week's problem is using God to build your brand. Martin Lloyd-Jones, someone I've quoted in this series before, has this really helpful collection of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. He he gave a really, really powerful image for just how 
sinful this action is. Lloyd-Jones talked about how normally when we think about what sin is, we imagine someone, I'll just give you a hit to his, his words here, we tend to think of it as we see it in its rags and in the gutters of life. We look at a drunkard, poor fellow, and we say, there is sin, that is sin. But Lloyd-Jones says, that's not the essence of sin. To have a real picture and a true understanding of it, you've got to look at some great saint, some unusually devout and devoted man. Look at him there upon his knees in the presence of God. Even there, self is intruding itself. And the temptation for him to think about himself, to think pleasantly and pleasurably about himself, and really to be worshiping himself rather than God. That, Lloyd-Jones says, not the other, is the picture of sin. It's not just that the measure of sin is in secret, not in public. The measure of holiness is really in secret and not in public. It's, it, it's, it's definitely true that you, you can't tell how sinful a person is just by what you see. That Jesus is, is calling out a sin that's so deep at the essence of sin that no one would ever see. Using God even in your prayers with him for your own purposes. But also holiness has got to be measured in secret. He's saying, what Jesus is saying is that you can't tell how holy a person is by what you see. It reminds me of a quote that I heard from a Puritan pastor named John Owen. This quote just pierces me, breaks my heart, scares me, and in in a, a way inspires me to seek grace. John Owen said, a minister may fill his pews. He's talking about pastors here, but there's a truth here for all of us. A minister may fill his pews, his communion role, the mouths of the public. Everybody's talking about him. But what that minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. I mentioned earlier, Jesus has given us a contrast here. He's trying to make a positive point. He's given us a negative example, but he really wants to make a positive point. He wants to show us, point us towards the kind of prayer that we've got to pursue, the kind that makes a difference, that's effective, that's genuine. He's saying, don't be like the one who comes to God because he loves himself, because he's trying to build his own brand for whom God is just a platform for getting what he really wants. Don't be like that guy. Instead, he says, you go into your room where no one else sees. Pray in secret as if no one else will hear. Pray as if you don't care who hears because the one you want to talk to is God himself, which is to say, friends, which is to say, when you pray, come to God because you love him. Not because you love yourself. Not because you love what others think of you. Come to him because you love him. Do you? Do you pray because you feel convicted of how your sins wound him? Not just your reputation, not just other people in your life that you care about, but actually wound God? 
because you feel a lack of resolution that you can't live with until you're honest with him? Do you turn to him quickly with your worries or your confusions, with things in your mind that you can't work through, things in your heart that are weighing you down? Or is your first call someone you believe might actually give you concrete help? Does prayer feel to you like a distraction from real effort, from something that actually might change the circumstances? Do you process your thoughts and your feelings with God like you would with a trusted friend? I've I've been very convicted by that this week. I'm not much of a verbal processor. That's not how I operate. I think things through. I churn on them. Like slow-cooked smoked barbecue. Just let it simmer. Smoke just seep into it until it's resolved. And a big part of my every week is usually conversations with people I love about difficult things. About breaking down what's wrong or mapping out a new, a new strategy for the future. And, and really just do a good bit of what I know you guys are doing in each other's lives all the time. When you care about people, you want to be invested in what's going on in their life. Well, things are often very complicated in my life and the lives of people I care about. I know that you feel that. And I've been convicted this week by how much processing of those things I'm just doing in my head that never goes anywhere else. How much I can churn on something, trying to whip it into shape and figure out exactly what's necessary to break through. How ultimately what I'm doing is putting on my own shoulders the burden of seeing the result that I want. As as opposed to processing it in prayer. Where it actually might be effective. Where I might actually get the relief that comes from talking to someone who understands. Not just understands, but actually has the power to do something about it. Someone who has a resource I don't have. Do you, do you verbalize what's on your mind and in your heart to God when no one else is seeing you, when no one else hears, as part of your process for figuring out what to do? Those are the questions that Jesus' words should raise for us. Who are you in secret when no one else sees? He's not saying public prayer is not a good idea. The whole Bible suggests otherwise. He's asking us, who are you when no one's looking, when no one's hearing? Because if you're not praying then, if you're not being honest with God, if you're not seeking Him when there's no other benefit but what He might actually give you, then you actually don't have a relationship with him. What you have is something other than a relationship with him. Come to God because you love him. For the same reason you come to other people in your life that you love. That's the first point. Now the second one. The second example. Come to God because you trust him. This is verses 7 and 8. This one takes a little bit more background information, I think, to understand where Jesus is coming from. So now he's switching gears from the hypocrite, who's his main focus in this whole section, to another example of of a what not to do when you pray. This time it's the Gentiles, the pagans, so those that Jesus hears, his Jewish hearers would have thought of as folks who, who didn't know the one true God. 
people who worshipped idols or who interacted with the world apart from knowledge of who God really is. What did those people do with their prayer lives? Don't be like them, Jesus is going to say. In that sense, it's interesting that Jesus is warning people against something that he knew they would reject. None of the people that he's, none of the people he's talking to in this example think that they're praying like pagans. They're like us. They, they think that their prayer lives are fine. Jesus is trying to help them see something that they haven't seen before, that actually these people whose prayer practices you know aren't healthy, you look a lot more like them than you realize you do. The problem he identifies here, this is in verse 7, is heaping up empty phrases. Heaping up empty phrases. That, that's the translation I'm using. I like that translation. Maybe yours says babbling. Does anybody have babbling out there? Show of hands. Just a couple of you. Um, I like babbling too. One of the reasons I like babbling here is because babbling is what's called an onomatopoeia. You're welcome. Onomatopoeia. You might need that someday in Trivial Pursuit or some such. An onomatopoeia is a word that sound reflects its meaning. The sound of the word comes from the meaning of the word. Well, in the original language here, Jesus used a word like that, and babbling is an English equivalent. Think of a word like sizzle. Sizzle. It sounds like fajitas, doesn't it? <laughs> babbling is the same way. Ba 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 babbling. Jesus has, cho- has chosen a word that refers to sounds that are just strung together. They don't have meaning. They don't have purpose. You're not saying them to actually communicate something. You're just stringing them together. He's referring to any words that we say, even if they're sensible ones, where our, where our minds and hearts aren't engaged with them, where we're just saying them. That's why, that's why I like the, the empty phrases translation. That's really what it is. The word itself might be perfectly fine. But your mind might not be engaged with it and your heart might be detached from it. There's a check to us here, friends. Christian piety, Christian meditation is never about disengaging the mind. Christian meditation is, is fundamentally different from Eastern meditation where detachment is the point, where you want to unplug your mind so that you can get to some sense of clarity. In Christian meditation, it always goes through the mind. The mind is the passageway for getting your heart where it needs to be. So we've got to be really careful in our songs that we sing or in our written prayers that we read that we're not mindlessly going through the motions. And when we pray... Without a written prayer, we've got to be careful that we're not just stringing together words, jargon that doesn't make sense to anybody else, or things that we're just used to saying because this, these are things you say when you pray without actually engaging them, speaking in some sort of code. There's a check to us here. But Jesus has a much more specific concern, and this is what I want to make sure we get. This takes us into the heart of what Christian prayer must be if it's effective for us and bring, brings honor to God. Jesus' concern is actually much more specific than that we don't just disengage our mind and let our mouths just run wild with whatever might come out. Jesus is concerned with the motive behind pagan prayers, with the reason they string together empty phrases and just talk, 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 talk. Jesus is concerned about motive, and he gives us their motive. 
they think that they'll be heard for their many words. In other words, they think that if they string together more and more words, they're going to stumble their way into the code that unlocks the treasure box. They think the key to them getting what they want lies in finding their way to exactly the phrases or the words or the amount of prayers that, that, that the deity is waiting for. Here's how another New Testament scholar, a guy named N.T. Wright, puts it. He says, We know from many writings and inscriptions that many non-Jews did use multiple formula in their prayers. Long, complicated, magic words, which they would repeat over and over in their anxiety to persuade some god or goddess to be favorable to them. I love what Wright says next, though. This gets at, again, Jesus' point, the motive behind this kind of praying. Such prayers are often marked by a note of uncertainty, Wright says. There were many divinities in the ancient pagan world, and nobody quite knew which one might need pacifying next or with what formula. So they're just throwing stuff at it, hoping that something will stick, that something might get through. Think about it as a, as a kind of code-breaking. Prayer in this model is a kind of code-breaking. There's some combination of words out there that the deity is waiting to hear. I've got to figure out how to get there, unlock it, and then get what I want from him. Reminds me of that Enigma movie about that computer where they're trying to decode the Nazi the Nazi secret transmissions. Do you guys know about this? It's a pretty amazing story. Um, it, it sounds like what pagan prayer is. They, they, they're, just, they're just looking for anything. They're just heaping on as many as they possibly can because they don't actually know what the code is. They've got to figure it out by quantity if they can't figure it out by quality. Or maybe this is a better illustration. Think of, it like, think of prayer in this model like a kind of computer Or the deity is a kind of computer that runs on a code that you designed for it. It's up to you to figure out how to get what you need out of that computer. The computer's got amazing processing power, but only knows how to do what you tell it to do. It's up to you to figure out what code is going to work to get the result that you want. Or, uh, Bill Herman gave me this image this week. It's a pretty good one. I'm going to use it. It's like one of those uh, fundraising thermometers, you know? where the, the people will set up when they're raising support for something and, and you've got the different levels of the thermometer that represent different amounts of money. So in this model, heap up empty phrases because you're trying to get, the, you're trying to get that red line to go higher and higher up the thermometer until it just... and you're there. Whatever the image we, we come up with to try to translate what they were doing into our own experience, here's the point. This kind of prayer treats God like some kind of machine. He's a machine that you operate well or not so well. He's a machine whose output depends on you. The effectiveness of prayer in in this model, prayers that work, it, it depends all on your mechanics. It's about your technique. It's about figuring out what he's waiting for you to hear. It's not personal. Prayer in this model, not personal. Don't be like the pagans who treat their gods like a machine that they've got to operate. Now, the alternative, Jesus' solution. Jesus' solution 
And his solution, God is not a machine to be manipulated or controlled. He's a powerful, loving father to be trusted. Look at verse 8. Don't be like them, he says, who think they'll be heard for their many words. Getting the output you want is not on you. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Oh, that phrase. That one is packed with encouragement. Your father. You don't pray to a machine. You pray to a father. You don't, in other words, translation, you don't have to convince him to love you. You don't have to convince him to care about what's weighing you down in your life. He's there already. And he knows what you need before you ask him. Translation, you don't have to educate him. He is not ignorant of what you need. He knows better than you do. He's not a machine to be controlled. He is a powerful father to be trusted. Now, it does mean that you've got to give up controlling him. In Jesus' relationship, or Jesus' model of healthy prayer, what you lose is any prospect that you can control this machine by finding the right code. You know, at least in the pagan model of prayer, you hope for that. You're not sure exactly how to get there, but you're throwing everything you've got at it in the hopes that you can control the output. At least you've got that hope. Jesus is saying, first of all, what's implied here is you've got to give that up. This God does not answer to you. He may hear you and respond, but he won't respond to your code that programs him and gives you exactly the result that you're looking for. There is no method of prayer that gives us results we design for ourselves. He is not that kind of God. But, if what Jesus says means we've got to give up the notion that we can control him, it also promises us that we don't have to. It frees us from the burden of carrying around our future, the future we want for ourselves on our own shoulders. Because a God on this model, this pagan model of prayer, may be powerful, but he's a tool who will only ever be used as well as you can use him. And that is not freedom, friends. In the pagan model of prayer, you still got to micromanage your own future. You still got to be the one who knows what you need. And you still got to be the one who's able to produce it. but not if you pray to God as a father. Not when your prayer is about a relationship of trust with one who knows better, who can accomplish whatever he sets out to accomplish, who isn't waiting on you to find the right words. What Jesus' model for prayer tells us, I just want to meditate on this for a few minutes. No points here. I'm just going to meditate on it for a little bit, okay? What Jesus' model for prayer, coming to him because you trust him as a father, not as, not as a machine that you have to manipulate. It means that he isn't playing games with us. 
He's not just sitting back waiting on us to find the right coat. He's not the big kid with his arms across the doorway waiting on the little kid to say the right secret password before he can get in. He's not toying with us. He's not trying to keep you from the good life. He's your father. He wouldn't do that. He isn't waiting for you to ask him for just the right thing as if you have to know what's best for yourself before he'll be for you. He isn't a resource that you've got to figure out before you can get much out of him. He isn't like a musical instrument that you pick up and try to learn to play that's powerful, that's got amazing sounds but only as good as you can produce. Or he isn't like a powerful software program. I I remember... uh, a few years ago, I got a, I got, uh, you know, my buddy Rich is amazing with, with this program that Adobe makes for manipulating photos, and I figured, well, I'll give it a try. So I got this photo program and put some of my photos in there and played around with it for a while. And guess what? They didn't look like Rich's photos. <laughs> the program, nothing wrong with it. The problem was with the coder. The problem was that I, I didn't know what result I wanted because I don't have a good eye. And I didn't know how to produce that result anyway because I'm not good with the program. Now, if God is just a machine, then knowing what result you need, that's on you. You've got to have an eye, a comprehensive view of your future to know all the moving pieces and how to manipulate them correctly. And then you've got to actually know how to use him right. He is a tool that will only be as effective as your knowledge base. That is not freedom. Those are shackles. How could you face one day feeling like that kind of weight was on your shoulders. But God, who is your Father, who invites you to pray through Jesus, would never limit His effectiveness to your ability to know what to ask and how to ask it. That is not how He treats His children. He's not a tool. He's a Father. Can't control Him. But friends, you don't have to. And that's beautiful. He isn't limited by our ability to communicate what we need to communicate with him. What we know from human relationships is that communication is really, really difficult. And it's almost never what we intend it to be. That, that sometimes clarifying communications, clarifying conversations just lead to more clarifying conversations which lead to more clarifying conversations. And confusion is always part of our way of communicating with each other. Which is why we stress out so much about how to communicate something to people. Now, if God were that difficult to communicate with, if he needed us to perfectly phrase what it is we feel before he would understand it and be able to respond to it, then that's not freedom. That's another kind of bondage. We'll always have to figure out what it'll take to get through to be understood. We'll always be worried about what we, how what we say might make him feel or think about us. About the fallout from our communication. But not with God. Not with your Father. He knows what you need before you ask him. Ultimately, friends, we come to him We come to him as a God who is a father that we trust, not a machine that we have to control. Because 
we know that his answer to us is always Jesus. And we don't know specifically how what we ask of him might translate itself into our circumstances. We don't get to know that, not with this God. But we know that whatever those circumstances might include, his answer to us is always Jesus. And this is Paul's point in Romans chapter 8, one of the most encouraging pieces of the Bible that you'll find anywhere. Where Jesus says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him, with Jesus, freely give us all things? You don't have to heap up empty phrases to try to unlock the code of the one who gave you freely what you would have never dared to ask him for. Who gave you his own son. Who did it for you despite your sin. For you who have rejected him in ways subtle and explicit every day that you've ever been alive. For me, a God who would respond to us in all of our flaws by sending the one most precious to this Father, by offering him up freely as a sacrifice to pay for the sins of those who had sinned against him, and who did that not just to cleanse us from our sin, but to install in our lives a power source for redeeming us not just from sin, but from all the brokenness of this world, who came to us not just as a sacrifice, but as a risen Savior who's coming back to reign. A God who would respond to you with that answer. That's a God that you can trust. A God to whom you can communicate what you need without fear, without worrying how you say it, without needing to know exactly what he'll do. When you pray, come to God because you love him. Who else would you talk to? And come to God because you trust him. Who else can you trust like him? Father, we come to you right now, just like Jesus told us to, We come to you right now because each of us in our own way this morning have cares weighing us down that are bigger than we can can alleviate and that, that are more complicated than we can understand. Things that we we struggle to understand ourselves, much less communicate even to our closest friends. We are burdened just by unraveling them, much less facing them. And these are the concerns that we lay down before you. Because you have come to us in Jesus, you are with us through him. And in his coming, you have promised us that you'll never hold back what we need. We come to you now, honestly, not having what we need, trusting you to give it to us. And asking you that you also help us pray to you with more authenticity than we have, 
with more confidence than we have and with more freedom than we have had. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.